Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. Um, I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and today I am joined by um, a really special guest, um, Ethan Kleinberg. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, it's great to have you on the show, um, and today we are talking about your, your new book, Emmanuel Levinas's Talmudic Turn. Um, philosophy and Jewish thought. It is out through uh, Stanford University Press. I think it just came out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Correct. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm excited to talk to you about it. But um, before we get into that, uh, I'll I'll ask you to introduce yourself. And um, so I know you're you are a professor of history and letters um, at Wesleyan University. But um, can you say a little bit more about your um, intellectual background, how you came to, you know, studying what you study and writing what you write about, as well as how you came to talking about or writing this book specifically. Yeah, it, it, it'd be my my pleasure to do so. So I'm, uh, as you suggest uh, or said, I'm a, I'm a professor of history and letters, and the letters part is sometimes a little baffling to people. Um, I'm in something called the College of Letters. Uh, I teach in the College of Letters at Wesleyan University, and that is a uh, um, a three-year major for philosophy, literature, and history. So it's a, an interdisciplinary uh, uh, in, endeavor. And, and I have sort of always been interdisciplinary in the humanities. When I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I started in philosophy and then moved toward religion and gravitated toward history, but ended up doing my BA in what was then called the humanities field major. Uh, and then when I went on to do my PhD at UCLA, I was in the history department, but on my um, uh, dissertation committee, uh, there there was a professor of comparative literature, Samuel Weber. And then I also did a lot of work with figures down at um, at UC Irvine uh, in and around uh, their, their concentrations in theory and deconstruction. So... So, so I've sort of always moved between history and outside of history. Uh, when I when I finished up at, at um, UCLA, I found myself, I found my way to, to Wesleyan University, and that turned out to be a very good fit, uh, both because there's a strong tradition of intellectual history there, but also because the journal History and Theory uh, resides there. So that would be the other component of my work, is I am the editor-in-chief of that journal, History and Theory. And I, I'd also say in terms of my work, some of it is intellectual history, clearly, and some of it probably would be considered more in theory and philosophy of, of history. And I, I like to move back and forth, and I would I would call myself intellectually promiscuous in that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I that's something I 
I relate to uh, as someone I study literature, but I um, I'm never far from philosophy and trying to come up with a difference between the two is very hard. So I, I just, I just always tell people I do textual studies. I think that's an easy thing to do. That sounds Um, right. (laughs) If it's written down, well, I don't know. Everything's is it's all writing. There's no outside text. I can study whatever (laughs) I I can study, whatever I want. Absolutely. Um, So this new book, Emmanuel Levinas's Talmudic turn. um, I'm wondering if you can kind of just give maybe a brief introduction to like we'll get more into the specifics of it in a in a moment but like what are you trying to what is the the background of it what brought you to thinking Emmanuel Levinas um who's such a major figure and maybe can you explain a little bit about his presence in the intellectual theoretical canon yeah uh so so actually I realized as you asked that question I didn't fully answer your first one um so I can sort of circle back to move forward that this book actually um, came out of my 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 first book, uh, Generation Existential, uh, Martin Heidegger's Philosophy in France, and that book was a reception history of that initial um, uh, understanding, use, abuse of Heidegger that happened between 1927 and 1961. And Emmanuel Levinas, who is this Lithuanian-born French philosopher. Uh, it was an incredibly important, is an incredibly important part of that that story. It's it's Levinas who first uh, translated Heidegger uh, into into French. Uh, one of the first um, phenomenologists to really be uh, talking about his work with other French thinkers. Uh, but crucially, after World War II, he's also one of the the thinkers who 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 realized the their intellectual debt to Heidegger, but also realized they needed to break with him because of his affiliation uh, with the Nazi party, uh, his work with national socialism, uh, and the way that his uh, philosophy, at least Levinas's mind, w- was compromised. And so after the, uh, the, the war, uh, and you see this in his, his very famous work, Totality and Infinity, he moves from an emphasis on sort of self or even sort of a notion of Dasein and the authenticity of understanding one's own most uh, uh, possibilities. To, he turns to understanding the other or looking to the other. Uh, and he wants to think of philosophy uh, at first as ethics and not first as ontology. So there's this this move in Levinas with and against Heidegger that moves toward ethics. And when I was writing that book, I, I came up with a lot of material that was out of that philosophical realm because when Levinas was in a prisoner of war camp, and we can talk about this later, he really started thinking what he called being Jewish as opposed to the designer being there. And, and in doing so, became increasingly interested uh, in sacred Jewish texts. And after the war, he starts working this through, and this is when he turns uh, to Talmud. And there's a parallel, or maybe not even maybe an intersection. I, in the book, I say it's a braid between what's going on in his rethinking of what it is to be a Jew after World War II, after Auschwitz, after the Holocaust, and, and what it means to be a, a, a thinker, a philosopher, uh, 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 someone who, who wants to understand a role and a place for ethics in this post-Holocaust world. Well, in, the, in that Heidegger book, uh, there really wasn't space. I mean, it was just 
all-consuming to try and figure out the relation between these two tendencies uh, in Levinas's life. And so I kind of put all this stuff in a drawer and I decided this would be my next project. And I started working on it after the, the Heidegger book came out. And I worked on it and I actually wrote a full draft of it. And I was very unhappy with that draft. I, I realized it, it looked a lot like the Heidegger book. It looked a lot like a very uh, a more traditional intellectual history, uh, which was great at one level. But I felt as though it really didn't do what I wanted it to do in terms of telling the story of this intersection between what really is sort of this, what one could call a secular or academic philosophical uh, persona, and this other one, which is about the transcendent possibility of ethics piercing time. Um, it wouldn't work if one was demoting one and prom or promoting the other. And that forced me to really rethink how I was working on history and intellectual history uh, and it actually led me to write this other book, Haunting History, for a deconstructive approach to the past, because I realized there had to be a way to move between without without having one hierarchy to have a kind of uh, ability to move between them. And that once that was done, I thought, well, I'm going to come back to Levinas. Do I still have that sort of passion to get at this, to, to, to look at it? I was asked to write an article for the uh, for, for Michael Morgan's uh, uh, Cambridge Companion to Levinas, or no, it's the Oxford Handbook. Oof, that was almost a mistake. The Oxford Handbook <laughs> on Levinas on his, his sacred Jewish writings. And, and when I wrote it, I realized I, I was still deeply invested in this project. It had been fallow. I was ready to go again. And, and I really wanted to take up these two concerns. You know, as you suggest, uh, Levinas is very important, and he's very important sort of in two different ways. Uh, uh, you, you see him in the realm of continental philosophy, uh, and you also see him in the realm of, of Jewish studies or Jewish thought. And, and they, they do come together, and there are works that try and work them through, but they sort of strangely run these parallel tracks. And, and my idea here was to really try and bring those together, to sort of see the intersections, the way they work and don't work together. Uh, to, to try to understand them. You know, Levinas himself uh, actually sort of published these works in different ways. He had his philosophical texts, which were with one publisher, and then what are commonly known as his confessional or Jewish writings, and they were published with another. And so he himself kind of intentionally or unintentionally kept kept them separate in a way. And the idea here was to to figure out the contaminations, I suppose, to, to try and really get at the relation of philosophy and Jewish thought. Yeah, I think something that I uh, immediately was struck with was what you're talking this these divides. Um, so you have this philosophy and Jewish thought, um, God on our side, God on God's side, as well as uh, like secular and and then religious history. Um, and so there's this, throughout the book, there are a lot of these bifurcations that you're trying to, to look at and, you know, work with in a deconstructive manner. Um, but the most obvious one, which I noticed, like, literally as soon as I opened the book, and is the style um, that you've written in. And um, I wish, you know, people could see it, uh, but we're on an audio uh, medium. Um, but it, it's, I, I read... Um, so what it is, is that you have on each page two columns, and these are two different texts. Um, 
one being a discussion of our side, God on our side, and then the other side, God on God's side. Um, I was I automatically thought of Derrida's Gla, um, as well as you talk about um, how Talmudic writing is commentary on commentary on commentary, and they're on the same page. So I, before I get into the actual content of the book, I wanted to ask you about how you came to this style, um, as well as how, I mean, you're, you can't control the reader and how they read, but how did, how do you think about a reader reading this? Because what I did was for each chapter, I read the our side and then I read the other side. Um, but I, there are different, there's so many different permutations of reading that. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that you, I, I mean, I, I'm so glad, first of all, you asked that question and also that you, you encountered the book uh, in that way, because um, that is really sort of the, the, the ideal approach that you end up grappling with it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, so, so on the, on the for, I mean, there, there, there's intellectual and formal aspects to it. The, the, the way I actually uh, came up with it, you know, as I was writing this book and realizing there were two different arguments, or I wanted there to be two different arguments at play, that I wanted to uh, apply this deconstructive approach where there are two different logics of history or of accounting for history, um, and that these logics don't, that, that in fact, at, at times, these logics um, are antithetical to one another, and that would sort of force the reader into a position of, of having to question each of these, but enrich the other as well. Um, I tried a number of things. I, I at one point thought the book would be sort of the uh, the what we what I call our side and and the other side. And I suppose I should explain that Levinas himself makes this distinction, uh, referencing uh, early rabbinic texts of God on our side and God on God's side. God on our side is the way that we can experience God in our everyday life and in our uh, historical understanding. Uh, it is a uh, within our realm of rational comprehension. But but God on God's side is something beyond anything uh, on this account. Uh, humans can access or know. And so it it works on a different logic. And it's a logic that, that we don't, we're, we just don't have, we can open ourselves up to it, we can avail ourselves of it, but we can't, we can't master it. And so there's a great sort of a deference at work between what the um, the rational ego or individual consciousness can process, and then of course allowing for something uh, other to exist. And so the the the, the logic of the book uh, tries to tell the story on our side, which would be the intellectual history in the more conventional sense, but then what I call the other side, which is an attempt to allow um, these trans-historical or transcendent um, points to punctuate uh, and and lead us. Uh, so it it's two different registers. And and as as I said, I I initially thought it would be first uh, the intellectual history, and then there'd be a coda, which would be this you know working with the Talmudic lectures that he gave to try and offer this counter. And I realized that was problematic because in writing it that way, uh, the reader reading the first part is going to then allow that first part to to dominate the second or it, it takes precedent it becomes the lens through which they read the other and in looking at texts like De like Derrida but also I think I was I was looking um at Mallarmé at the time uh I was also thinking about Talmud I'd been reading a lot of Talmud and I realized that there was there's often competing arguments on the page and so I thought, well, I'm going to try and write this in a way where the two narratives 
compete. And then I'm going to set it up uh, with one and the other. They're going to do different work. They're going to be in different fonts. Uh, they're going to operate under different logics. And then the reader is going to decide how the reader will navigate the book. And in the introduction, I mentioned that if you're a a left to right reader, maybe you do the left first and the right first. If you're a right to left reader, maybe you do the right first and the left first. You could read it all the way through uh, one column and then all the way through the other. Uh, but it empowers the reader. Uh, it challenges the reader, I think. But also, I, I like it. I think it's playful as well in the sense that it, it, it does something different. And I guess the last formal thing I would say is I did need to have a very supportive uh, editor and press uh, to allow me to write a history book in this format, because as you might imagine, it's it's not currently the norm uh, to do so. Uh, and there are, you know, there's all sorts of considerations when you're when you're trying something different like that. And and Stanford University Press and Erica Wetters and uh, Hemp DeVries uh, were incredibly supportive. Um, incredibly uh, positive they they saw it and they they really wanted to, to 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 run with it and so that that was necessary too so there's there's all sorts of high level intellectual things and there's these other sort of the nuts and bolts of of, of the world in which we publish i i was so i mean i loved it i thought it was such an interesting <laughs> thing <you>. uh, <laughs> that that was done and i think because for me, it was a really interesting experience because it, it really foregrounded, similar to how Derrida does it in Gla, um, the fact that reading is always a choice and that, you know, when it's, it's a crisis, uh, it's a decision that you come to. And like every time I got to a page or sometimes I would finish a paragraph and I'd be like, well, maybe I should read the other part. Like, I, I, yeah. because you never know, do they are, how much do they work with each other on the exact same page. Um, and then I, there was this really interesting idea that I was toying with throughout the whole process of reading was that, you know, I'm not in control of this reading. This language does come to me from somewhere else. Um, and it's very obvious when you have to make all these decisions to, to bring language back to the self, um, that it, it does ultimately come from somewhere else. Um, so it was a really strange and, and perhaps haunting experience to read this. Uh, and, and so maybe now we can go more so into the, into the book, into the arguments. Um, so you mentioned earlier, um, like where Levinas is coming to these Talmudic arguments and um, how he comes to talking about it and, and his influences. Can you say more about these and maybe bring into that into the fore the this braid that you you just brushed over earlier <laughs> yeah so the, the the book is organized i mean it's so you can tell it's organized in a number of ways but the, the it's organized around what what i describe as a braid between these sort of three uh influences uh, and it is sort of an imperfect analogy because they they're not really separated like a braid they do sort of uh, uh, come together in places, but but those would be uh, uh, his his own upbringing and interest in in Jewish thought. He was uh, raised in Lithuania. He did not go to a Talmudic academy. Uh, Lithuania is famous for these Talmudic academies that were uh, tragically destroyed in World War II. Uh, 
but but he did not go to those. He was raised in a more enlightened household. Uh, they learned Russian. Uh, they were his his parents owned a Russian language bookstore, um, and he himself had proclivities toward toward philosophy. He went to a gymnasium. Uh, so, so it wasn't uh, the education or for formation of someone who was going into a Talmudic academy or tr- these sort of traditional Jewish thought. Nonetheless, it, it is uh, Lithuania. He was steeped in this culture. He knew all about it. It was an important part of his formative years, and I'll come back to that. The, the other strand of the braid uh, that I discuss is his interest in uh, philosophy and particularly his place uh, in the world of phenomenology uh, in the 20th century, both as a student of Husserl and then of Heidegger, and then in conversation uh, with the what, many of, of those we consider the most important um, philosophical voices uh, in, in France uh, in, the, in the 20th century. Uh, and he manages to have a very important place uh, in that conversation about philosophy, even though he doesn't really have a university post until uh, m- much later in his life. Um, and then the the third strand of this parade is what I call French universalism, because he is quite enamored of uh, the ideals uh, of France, of education, uh, of a kind of uh, civilizing mission for better and for worse. Um, and the, the school where he works, which is a, a Jewish school, was part of something called the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which is uh, it, this this uh, organization that ran schools in mostly in North Africa uh, and the Middle East, but also in some areas of Eastern Europe, to bring Jewish education uh, to the Jews of those areas. But they did so in French, and they did so running a, a French educational model. And so you get this sort of French universalism. Uh, transposed into this Jewish register, but working toward these universal rights of man. And that also is an important influence on Levinas, someone who goes to university in France, uh, becomes uh, is naturalized, he uh, joins the army, he eventually serves in the army for France in World War II. Uh, so he sees himself as part of that, uh, well, that patrimony, that world, even if he recognizes the the, the many problems at play. The Dreyfus Affair, of course, is a very important instance where you see uh, figures like Zola uh, railing against the anti-Semitism at play. But Levinas is also aware that that the anti-Semitism was there to be railed against. So uh, it is a really interesting and, and contentious model. So you have these three different strands of his, um, I guess what we would call his, his intellectual biography, his formation, uh, that are all at play as he turns uh, to Talmud. And of course, this leads to an inflection in his philosophy too. Um, If you want, I I can pivot here and talk more about the actual sort of arrival of Talmud, uh, which which comes late, or we can sort of uh, retrench into what I've already said and then move forward. But uh, Um, yeah, I think that's fine. I was, my next question was, I was, I was trying to think of, like the order and now, you know, order seems so strange now. Um, but I think I was wondering if we could talk about um, the being Jewishness that that's coming up with it and how maybe the Talmud can, can bring us towards that. Um, and I was specifically thinking of it in terms of um, 
Levinas's own philosophical development and how he he begins with Husserl, but um, the Husserlian project is fundamentally located in in an I and an ego and has no place for the other, and how he he moves towards uh, Heidegger, but then there's this realization that you know Heidegger, even though there is always being with others, Heidegger famously has all these problems with them. One of them, one of them being the uh, his being a Nazi and, and joining the Nazi party as Rechte. Um, and so I wonder how we can talk about this, this movement as related to the being Jewishness and as related to a questioning and, and coming into question of the Talmud. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really, that's a, a really good and really difficult question. And, and one I've, I've, I've grappled with a lot. Uh, the, the, the turn to this concept of être juif or, or being Jewish uh, really does occur or really crystallizes uh, when he's in a prisoner of war camp. He is uh, caught as a soldier. It is by grace of his um, status as a French soldier that he is not sent uh, to the extermination camps. And that is just has to do with the happenstance of the, the German army members who, who captured them. Uh, however, he wasn't a prisoner of war camp and they did, uh, contrary to the Geneva Convention, create a different section for the Jewish prisoners who did have to wear the, the star. Uh, and while in the camp, um, he became acutely aware, both of the what, what he considered uh, the, the, the paucity or the solipsism of Heidegger's thought. And he became increasingly interested in what whatever relation he could ascertain uh, between uh, well, between Torah at the time uh, and uh, this idea of, of, of being Jewish and what it would mean to, uh, in an ethical realm uh, uh, for being Jewish. And he's grappling with this. And I would, I would say that it, it's not something that he resolves while he's there, but he realizes the, the, the work he had been doing with and against Heidegger uh, had come to a stop with this sort of solipsism that, that you suggested. And, and you could argue, I mean, our people argue both way about Husserl, whether it ends up getting all contained in that eye or whether there's ways to punctuate it uh, or puncture it, excuse me. Uh, but Levinas is looking for that way out. And one of the, you see this in his writings on escape uh, and you see it in this uh, construct he has of something called the Ilya, the there is, which is this anonymous being. And, and there's this idea of anonymous being. And also there's this you know, sort of working with this uh, 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 unrepresentable God that nevertheless uh, communicates that are that are both going on. But it's not till really after uh, the war, after he returns to Paris, after the realization that his family's uh, been killed in Lithuania, victims of the Holocaust, uh, after he starts his job as director of this uh, this Jewish school. Uh, in in Paris, uh, that that he in a strange way by happenstance uh, comes to encounter an, an enigmatic Talmudic master named Shushani, and Shushani is a very strange character. Talk about haunting! Uh, it, it's very hard to know exactly who he is or where he came from. Uh, there's been a fair amount of ink spilled trying to track him down one way or, or another. Uh, he uh, shows up in Elie Wiesel's work. Uh, he shows up in all sorts of places in interviews about him. Uh, 
But for Levinas, you might imagine that he is a sort of ghost of Levinas's uh, Lithuanian past and a reminder of the, the path he did not take, that he did not move toward these texts when he was young. He did not work on Talmud when he was young. He comes to it late and he comes to it after the war and he comes to it in this strange way. But it's in working with Shoshani that he starts to unlock what he thinks are the answers um, in Talmud. And these are transcendent answers. And you can then start to, to draw out the way he sees this category of being Jewish as one that's open to a kind of radical alterity. Uh, and in the Talmud, it's this r- radical alterity of the way meaning comes and the sort of meanings I'm talking about are, are things like ethical pronouncements come from without, come from this other side, but they land in historical conditions in a moment. And so the way they work for us today uh, is, is assuredly different uh, than the way it say it worked for Moses in Moses's time. And yet the, the principle or the ethical ideal is unchanged. It can hit uh, either of these moments of time. And this sort of radical alterity that's worked, this 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 total other, uh, does appear in both the Talmudic lectures, in the way he understands what it is to be Jewish, but also in his philosophical work. And so you end up with this interesting, uh, problematic uh, uh, construct being Jewish, because on the one hand, he wants to claim it is this opening to the other, this deferral to the other. On the other, it's always perilously uh, placed in, in in a language of a chosen people or an exemplary people or an exemplary choice. And so it's always in danger of falling into the sort of particularity he's trying to outrun by opening it up to the other, uh, which, which makes it a very hard construct to work with and a very interesting one, certainly historically, to try to, to work through and have to, to work through how he comes to work through it. Shushani himself is one of these wonderful figures of the past where because you because you just don't know <laughs> so much of it is just sort of like pulling at these threads trying to figure out what one could make of it uh it's 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 a great he's, he is a great enigma <laughs> yeah i think so you would just you're hitting on this this topic or maybe a central tension not just in levinas but i in I don't know, like all post Hegelian philosophy or all philosophy even um, of the 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 divide between the particular and the universal and and what we do with that and and how does the universal show up in the particular and um, I don't know. It's such a. I'm wondering if you can relate that to this question of God on our side and God on his on God's side um, and and maybe what it means to to interpret um and how that becomes something of the particular and and what it means to interpret in terms of the universal yeah i mean the part that's interesting and difficult at least in in my understanding about this is that particular universal divide always happens on our side it actually isn't a problem uh, for God on God's side, because you could, I mean, if you're Spinoza, the particular is the universal, for instance, if it's just a one thing model. But but one could imagine that that the logic isn't such that it's, it's a, an either or in this way. Uh, but it breaks down that way uh, when you get on, on, on to our side. And that's uh, where 
I would say that the interesting thing, or, or one of the things that fascinates me about Levinas, is if you can if you can push far enough, you realize the solution of the particular universal is attunement uh, to what he calls uh, uh, God on God's side, and, and because it's this sort of strange post Holocaust absent God, that's God is only there from sort of the meaning and the signs that we can uh, account for on our side. It's not miraculous and it's not a sort of intervention or someone coming in and doing things. Uh, it's a, a, a something that is available to us. And it's a, a, that availability is what allows, at least on my reading, uh, the, the potential that, that this particular universal uh, divide doesn't tip one way or the other. So you don't end up with a universalism. Uh, so the French universalism, of course, you could argue is particularly French and is just proselytizing what is particularly French as universal. On the other hand, uh, you could certainly argue that for Levinas, he often sort of seems to have language that seems very particular only to certain kinds of sacred texts that have meaning, Jewish texts. And so how do you... Um, deactivate that falling back into the one or the other. And uh, at least uh, uh, what I'm trying to do is is actually have that gesture toward the radical other that doesn't allow either one of these to hold form. You're always understanding the particular is something that has to gesture, gesture toward a universal or else it becomes solipsistic. And that universal has to count for, for the uh, particular or else it becomes this kind of, uh, I don't know, you could, you could think of it as the, 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 the you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs model. The goal of the universal can sacrifice a few particulars. Well, on this Levinasian model, no. The minute you start sacrificing a few particulars for the, the sake of the universal, you, you've given up the ghost, you've lost the ethics. So somehow it has to be that uh, interesting, permanent uh, toggling and destabilizing between the two that pushes it forward. And that would be also pushing it toward a, a future. And so there is, it's not a logic of, progress, I wouldn't say, but it's a, a calling to continue the work uh, in perpetuity going forward. Uh, the, the, that itself may be a kind of messianism or messianicity, to use uh, Derrida's term, that if we're always doing the work, then, then there is something that has been achieved. It just is always to be achieved. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and I I also am I'm wondering now, um, I think this whole question of, of the particular and the universal is, and the other is something that, I don't know, this is a diatribe, I'll go on and we can, you don't, we don't have to go on it completely, but I, I don't know, I, I'm like, I think, I think a lot more people should read Levinas and try to and figure out something about the other um, that escapes all signification. Um, uh, and I think, I don't know, I think if our politics or maybe ethics were, were a little more Levinasian, we'd have a lot of different conversations. Um, but I, I want to go into a different, into a different arena with that and maybe ask about, um, Moten and how you're engaging with Fred Moten. And before, before you kind of talk about what you're doing, can you say more about what Fred Moten's critique or his engagement with Levinas is and where where it stands and where that springs from yeah it's I mean that's a good question I don't I don't want to be able to purport to speak for Fred Moten because he Fred Moten's such a powerful thinker um so, but, but but I'll sort of rehearse the arguments that I'm trying to take up because um uh 
uh, scholars like Fred Moten and John Drabinsky have have uh, offered a very strident critique uh, of Levinas and the place where his um, uh, idea about ethics and the other falls short. And this is to say, uh, specifically, it falls short because of uh, looking at comments Levinas has made about other civilizations, about the way other uh, peoples or cultures mourn. Uh, about the limits of which books might count. And so these are, are statements and interviews that, that um, Levinas has made. If you look at Judith Butler's work also, there's a critique of Levinas's engagement and discussion of the state of Israel. And, and these are all fraught and difficult discussions. Uh, there is a lot of debate about them. I don't want to uh, state that, the, that there's a sort of one side one should take or another. But, but to my mind, it, there's something really important at stake in taking up these questions, not dismissing these questions, that it, it's really important to say, okay, if there are these blind spots in the work of Levinas, where are they? Uh, you know, where do they come from? And what does that mean in our understanding of his of his work? Uh, does it impeach it entirely, as some say? Are there ways to recalibrate it? I, I do think Moten is offering a very powerful recalibration. Uh, in my work, I want to take that up. I want to take up the critique he offers uh, and the way he's trying to find, in some ways, like an early moment in Levinas for him, uh, prior to where where he he uh, sees it going awry or falling into these um, uh, uh, European or Euro- Eurocentric uh, tendencies, um, uh, tendencies of, of exclusivity. Uh, and of racism, and and the the famous term is racism, uh, however unintended, uh, and so I I do want to press that, and and I actually find that that Levinas himself has some interesting biases that originate in biases against uh, uh, Eastern European uh, Jews, Hasidic Jews in particular, which seems counterintuitive given his place as uh, this figure reclaiming Talmud, uh, but he has a deep distrust of a kind of mysticism, uh, of a kind of emotional connection uh, with God, this idea that you can have a sort of ecstatic relation. He wants it to be a different sort of, uh, I would say, more intellectual relation, relation. And you can see the logic that's at play in this earlier allergy, this initial other, perhaps, uh, working out in his concerns about things like cultures that that uh, mourn through dance or uh, other cultures that he sees as somehow doing things he finds uh, too mystical or uh, too pagan as he says they're none the, those statements don't get any less problematic but perhaps one can then try to get in to where Levinas himself has these blind spots to, to see whether there are ways for this notion of, of the other side and our side might actually uh, offer a kind of, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? A counter, a counter that, that, that might be able to, to move us forward in our discussion of Levinas, which I think is something that Fred Moden uh, is trying to do and does quite successfully. 
so the the goal in in my final chapter is to try and also push that further. One of the questions uh, that is asked by, by Moten and myself is why can't we just let go? You know, why do we always fall back into these sort of uh, identitarian constructs, uh, be they in terms of state or ego or self? And is there a way, is it possible? Because it is impossible to entirely let go, of course. We, we all come from someplace and we all carry these things uh, with us. I'm sufficiently Heideggerian in my view of history to think, or Gadamerian to think this is so. Uh, and yet there's got to be a way for us to to defer, to release, to relinquish, to be able to, to, to make that opening to the other and the other's histories and the other's voices. And it's, that's where my, my, I attempt to, to, to have a, a, an, an engagement uh, with Moten and Moten's work, uh, which I do find so important and powerful and, and, and necessary for our moment to try and turn this book towards some of those questions that, that are the questions of our moment. Yeah, I I think there's there's a a big question of reading and and maybe I I want to I want to go into that direction as well because mm-hmm. something that you're doing is is reading reading for the beyond or reading for the other within a text. Um and you write at the end of chapter 3 um I'll I'll quote it in full because I I underlined it and I really liked it. Uh, so you write <laughs> Perhaps Levinas's acknowledgement of his limits is a clue in itself, reminding us that the genius of the reader or the writer is not where inspiration lies or where we should look to understand Levinas as a reader of Talmud and Jewish texts. Instead, we should look to the transcendent meaning of the text, the opening to the other that always remains the potential to say more than it says. Um, so I think there's this really interesting uh, conception here that that you can see in a lot of different discourses, but um, just the idea that you know it's you say more than you you mean and and do you see this as some kind of a a way in which the the other side is able to pierce our side and and what does that mean maybe for a, like how we read history or how we read textuality um especially in relation to the fact that you know Talmud is it's or like the Talmudic turn is all about is an interpretive turn it's it's reading and and commenting it's not you know this isn't a Husserlian like I'm going to look at this object and think of everything I can and block out everything it's I'm entering into a history of something and what do I say that is beyond what is already there yeah it's I I, I think that's right and it's a good question it, I mean it is phenomenological uh he, he it, Levinas still is working in the phenomenological even if he does allow for this um uh, transcendence, but but it is about this saying that says more than it says. This language that pre-exists us and uh, exists after us, and and that is, to my mind, the really interesting moment because that's the moment where we relinquish control. Uh, so so rather than uh, the genius of Goethe, for instance, who surely is 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 genius, but rather than looking to Goethe to understand the the the, the genius of Faust. Uh, you can actually watch the way Faust travels and changes and why it can speak uh, to us today, if it does, uh, or at other times. I think that sort of ability of, of writing and reading uh, uh, unlocks it from 
any one specific time and place. And the, the, the ramifications for history is that it unlocks it from a kind of uh, total contextualism that tries to say that if we can just find all the context, we can understand everything that's there. It actually allows uh, these artifacts to speak to different moments and different places. It also allows us to understand that the, the, the strangeness we might see in the past is a, a strangeness we should also recognize in our future, that, that by, by warrant of us being here doesn't mean everything is normalized in terms of our interpretive strategies. The, the very text of which you speak will surely travel forward and surely travel forward in ways that are unexpected to us. Uh, even the words I offer you now, you know, I, I put them out there. Uh, but there's more to them. There's more to them for you or others who are going to be listening in the future uh, than than what I put out. And that is a kind of opening to the other that Levinas is trying to uh, not only highlight, but construct. Uh, and it is of the same dynamic as the opening to what he calls God on God's side, that there is this other level of meaning, uh, this other level of meaning, which can punctuate times and land in times. Uh, and if they land uh, in, in a certain way, they can be very important uh, in a particular context, but that doesn't use them up. Uh, there's more, there's more to be had. And it, it's, a, it's precarious on the one hand, uh, but it's dynamic and generative and another, and it, it does force us out of ourselves. And maybe that's the other, you know, why, why can't we let go moment is as you suggest this textual moment that we don't hold it and we don't hold the meaning and we don't master the meaning. It's actually about sort of uh, letting go and, and hearing what else there is to be heard about what we say, about what we write, about what others write, uh, a deferral. <laughs> yeah. So the question, why can't we let ourselves go? Um, so that's uh, Fred Moten um, in the Universal Machine. Um, I'm wondering, can you can you say more about this question? Um, because um, you say it's like a central question, and and I want to get towards the the conclusion uh, because I do think um, it's so interesting in the sense, you know, from a stylistic point of view, just the conclusion. It's back to that uh, single column of text. So there is this idea um, that you know we've brought the two together. Um, so what is, what is this bringing together that happens at the moment of letting go and what is, um, letting go and how does Levinas allow for this to happen? And, and what are you seeing in that, that might yes. be like the point? So, so the, the, the hard part of the question, well, there's a couple of hard parts of the question uh, you asked, but I'll try and uh, take them one at a time. The, the, the whole story, I think, of Levinas's turn to Talmud is, is one about a desire to let go and an inability to let go that are working at the same time. You know, if, if you would, were to think about, I don't know, totality and infinity or, or otherwise than being, you would think that Levinas would gravitate toward a sort of a more radical letting go in deference of the other. Uh, but at the same time that he's uh, working through these ideas, working, moving toward an alterity, allowing for anonymous being to take this very important role, he's also trying to understand this, what seems to be very particular identity of, of being Jewish. And, and he is, and in the book, I really talk about this, in taking over this Jewish school, he is deeply committed to the continuation of Judaism after the Holocaust, that, that Jews and Judaism must continue. 
that that has to they the the assimilation or annihilation cannot be allowed uh, to to win out. And so at the same moment, he's trying to open things up in a certain way, saying, you know, identitarianism is not right. At the same moment, he won't concede uh, the category of being Jewish in any kind of way. And so he tries to construct it in a way that allows for this opening, but is always in danger of falling back in, in what I refer to in the book as a kind of exemplarity, that it's the Jew who is the, the paragon of whatever this uh, act is. Uh, that's a kind of uh, particularism to my mind, or essentialism. And so the, the book is all about this uh, back and forth in Levinas, where he's trying to find these mechanisms to open up to the other, but in doing so, he cannot let go. Uh, uh, of of his Jewishness or Judaism, and one can certainly understand uh, the the need to hold on to this after the persecution uh, and extermination of the Nazi years, and in the face of what he sees as as the um, the dangers of assimilation, uh, especially as he comes to understand a certain uh, way of interpreting Talmud as the key to the kinds of ethical pronouncements he wants to make. And so these Talmudic lectures that he gives in Paris that become you know, uh, so famous uh, are precisely his attempts to use the Talmud to make these ethical pronouncements and make that connection between Jewish thought and ultimately to, to a philosophical thought that can travel beyond uh, the particularities of Judaism. So, so he never lets go. I mean, in his quest to let go, he can't. And, and the, the, the book tries to, to grapple with that question. Uh, can I answer it? I, I'm not sure. I do try to, at the end, work through the ways that there can be, and it's, this is a very deconstructive uh, uh, take, that, that there can be a letting go that is a guarding as well, if one doesn't allow either to completely dominate the, the, uh, the, the movement. Um, the book comes back together, as you say, so the introduction is a single text and then it splits and then it uh, comes back together and the conclusion is a single text that, that tries to make a conclusion. Um, I did uh, spend a lot of time trying to decide whether bringing it back together was the, the right strategy or the, the wrong strategy, having pulled it apart. But the, the goal, successful or not, was to bring the two columns together in a way in the end, so that they 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 could they, they couldn't be kept separate entirely. They contaminate each other, and to allow that contamination to drive the conclusion uh, to, to its end, to to come to some uh, summation that doesn't really finish, uh, but that brings them back together for the reader to see the way uh, the 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 contamination is at play in these two columns held apart uh, throughout the rest of the book. It's, you know, uh, it's a flyer. I mean, I, 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 it, it, it took a lot of time to try to do it. The, there's a big question as to whether it's successful. Writing the whole book, my, my, my question to myself is, well, I'm going to do this. I'm committed to it. I, 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 I think it's the right intellectual thing to do. Will anybody understand it? That's, that's, that's the million-dollar question. Have I, have I sabotaged it by writing it this way, or have I managed to pull it off? Uh, we'll we'll that see that's that's what the 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 reader in the future will tell me right so <laughs> yeah i think it was successful that's my Thank i you. think it was i liked it uh and i mean it's it's an interesting you know to go back to the split uh 
as just as someone who is, I am a text. I I don't know. I that's my job. I, I as a literary person, I think all about the form and and what I was thinking. You know, the title of the conclusion is constitutive dissymmetry, and when you look at the the two chap the chapters with divides, like there's one side um, that is it's it's the our side it's longer or like it's wider um and it has so like you're getting more words than the other side so there is this dissymmetry so that it does place that final chapter within um within the oneness of or or rather you can always read the previous chapters in the same way as the final chapter as being it is singular it is you know, Jean-Luc Nancy, like being singular plural, um, that kind of, that kind of idea. Um, so I want to take this and maybe make a, a larger question out of it, out of this question of the double or the letting go that allows for holding on or the holding on that allows for letting go. Um, I was thinking when I first got this book, um, uh, the title or the, the, the post colon, the little subtitle would be philosophy and Jewish thought. Um, and I was thinking as a, as a French speaker, as Levinas as a French speaker, it would be like uh, philosophie et la pensée juive. Um, and the, the A, if we say it out loud, A is, is it, or actually it's and, I just spoke my own question. Yes. Um, <laughs> it would mean, it would mean is, as well as Anne. So yes. I'm wondering, maybe can you talk a little bit about this question of the tension between philosophy and Jewish thought as expressed in Levinas? Like, is philosophy Jewish thought? Is Jewish thought philosophy? Are they they different? Or do we have to say they are one and the same and different at the same time? Well, I, I, I like what you did. Uh, you know, I, I love all of, um, you know, being and nothingness, being and uh, time, all of these uh, ands, which, you know, when you when you move in the French register are ands and ours uh, or mm-hmm. ises um, that that the, you do have this sort of separation and this uh, combination of the two. A shame uh, that we don't have it in English. Well, you know, we, we <laughs> I guess we, we work with other things. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, the, the, the fun of ontology also falls apart in English where you have to have ontology and ontology. It doesn't, yeah. they, they, they don't just simply uh, uh, blend uh, seamlessly into one another. But, but, but yes, I mean, that, that's one of the, the, the key and interesting aspects of the book is that you, you know, again, Levinas sort of artificially at times seems to separate philosophy, his philosophy, his secular philosophy from his Jewish thought. And this seems to be at work, at least in his, um, the way he publishes and often in the way he uh, presented the material. Uh, and yet you, as there has been a lot of scholarship, either trying to pull them together or tear them apart. Uh, in this book, it is precisely that way that it is both an an and and an is uh, for Levinas. Um, you know, you you might argue that the earlier Levinas, while has while he has profound interest in uh, questions of religion or of of uh, issues involving the possibility of God, um, it really is a, a privileging of the philosophical uh, in his in his earlier work. And that it's after the war and after the Holocaust and after 
really sort of working through these issues that that you get a kind of inversion where where the ethics that are t- to come and to, to play such an important role in the philosophy are, are derived uh, in one way or another from Jewish thought and thus the then the Jew so so it you you could turn it two ways where you know the the philosophy is sort of how he looks at Jewish thought at one point and then the Jewish thought becomes the the, the means for him to to engage in the philosophy and they they turn on each other but mostly they're contaminated with each other throughout and you know the 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 braid tries to look at different poles of the ways that he's trying to set them up poles strands uh, too many metaphors but but in the end uh, it, it turns out to be the case that the, really the, the, the one is always inside of the other for Levinas. He, he, he doesn't outrun that. And that's part of the problem on his side for his issues of, of particularity and, and, and universalism. So, you know, there are, there are those who try to make the philosophical thought uh, the realm of the, the, the universal and the Jewish thought the realm of the, the particular. Others move into uh, political realms, uh, but to my mind, that you you can't distinguish them, and you can't collapse the one into the other, and 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 that I guess is the the, the your reading of philosophy and Jewish thought does a good job in trying to make that make that point. You know, that might be lost in the the, the English version, although you know, again, English version English subtitles are so strange nowadays because one thing they have to do is make sure that you're you're. Your, your book is searchable to the, the right audiences. And so uh, oftentimes you're straining to come up with something you're happy with that also will make sure that it shows up uh, in the internet in the right places. And that, that surely is a weird, a weird constraint of our moment. <laughs> yeah, that's a, this is definitely um, an SEO optimized title. <laughs> uh, if you just search any of these, you'll get, this should yeah. be right at the top. It's, um, that's, that's, I guess, the goal of, uh, of, of how we title things in, in this, our 21st century. <laughs> yeah, and frantically trying to find some kind of article in, on the library website or in JSTOR or whatever, just typing in the biggest terms you could think of. Boom. <laughs> uh, well, I have uh, one final question, which um, is, what are you thinking about now? Do you have anything that's already on the horizon um, or anything that's uh, is inchoate and incipient and, and trying to start. Well, there's something that is starting. So I, I had the, the 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 privilege and the honor of giving the Reinhard Koselleck lecture at Bielefeld University. Uh, well, at virtually a couple of days ago, and I gave a talk on a, a project that I'm I'm working on now, uh, which runs on what I'm calling temporal anarchy. And one could certainly see aspects of that in the, in the Levinas book. And it really is trying to, to bring some of the way that these sort of temporal instabilities I play with in the Levinas book into a, a, a larger uh, theory or philosophy of history for our moment. And, and I, I've actually kind of realized that I, I'm writing a trilogy. Uh, and the, the trilogy starts with haunting history, which is about a deconstructive approach to the past. It's it really is a polemic against certain modes of writing history in our, in our time, although it does offer this alternative, the deconstructive approach. The, the Levinas book is my attempt to actually to put my money where my mouth is, if you will, to do it, to try and write a deconstructive uh, uh, history. And then this, this next book, which I'm calling The Surge, uh, which is about the way the past can, can surge up and push us forward, push us under, uh, turn us over, 
but can bring the past uh, into the present. The way this surge uh, occurs uh, is to, to move from this sort of uh, uh, diagnosis, this attempt to, to write something like this and to, to create what I'm calling a more general uh, building on the deconstructive approach, but, but trying to make a more general theory or philosophy of history uh, that that meets our moment. And and uh, the the I guess the the kicker for this is, to my mind, our moment is the end time of truth as we've previously known it, and that we need to have a different uh, way of looking at the past, the way of accounting for the past uh, than than the one that we had been using in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. So. Now, whether I can do that is a is an open question, but but I did give a talk called uh, uh, "Temporal Vectors in the Compass of History at the End Time of Truth," and I am trying to figure out what our new compass of history is and should be. Well, that sounds really interesting, really necessary, uh, and uh, as with everyone I talk to, it's, it sounds really big. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we'll see if it gets smaller. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find the particular. Um, well, I hope, you know, once that is written, that you can come back on the show and, and we can talk about that. Yeah, um, I'd love to do that. That'd be a pleasure. The final, final part of the trilogy. Um, so thank you, Ethan, for coming on the show today. Um, it was so great to talk to you about your new book. Um once again, I'll give the title but just in case people forgot, uh, and you can get the SEO. Uh, so this was Emmanuel Levinas's Talmudic Turn, Philosophy and Jewish Thought. It's out through Stanford University Press. Is it officially out? Did it come out? Has it? I think the 19th is the official date, but I understand people are receiving it. So. <laughs> well, I definitely have it. Uh, well, by the time this, this podcast will have been published, it will be out. Um, so... I recommend it. Uh, Go get a copy. Uh, Ethan, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Britt. This has been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. I love the questions. uh, And I I, I appreciate your enthusiasm for for all sorts of theory and text and writing and thought uh, and and getting it out there. So good work. Thank you. Um, So thank you, listeners. Uh, This was once again, uh, Britt, for uh, the New Books Network. Until next time.